Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. Today is the beginning of a wonderful time of year, the Christmas season. We call it the Advent season in the church because the word Advent means coming. And we remember the coming of Christ the first time, and we look forward to the coming of Jesus a second time. So just as we prepare our hearts for worship and reorienting our lives to the important things over this Christmas season, to God, to relationships and generosity and service of others, so also we prepare our hearts for the reality we have yet to look forward to the coming of Jesus a second time when he returns again and sets everything right. You see, each Sunday of Advent, we light a candle signifying the reality that as we seek God and follow him, we discover more and more light and truth, and we bring that same light and truth to the world around us. So as we start a non-traditional Advent series today called Love Story, we light first this year the candle of love, because the heart of who God is and the heart of this season is all wrapped up in the fact that God always initiates love toward us first. And because we have experienced that love, Jesus asks that we give that same love away because freely we have received and freely we give. So would you join me in prayer? Lord, we ask that you would come today, that your Holy Spirit would be here, and that you would take this yearning in our hearts for love, and that you would, as we go to your word, come to us and speak to us and dig a deeper well in us, that we trust your love more, that we experience your love more, and we have more love to give away during this season. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Again, one of the reasons we look at Christmas today and this time of year is that we love to redig those wells of love and joy in our lives and in our relationships. And that's the reason we have so many wonderful love songs that have become Christmas favorites. And that's the reason Hallmark starts their marathon of romantic love stories, because Christmas reminds us of love. And so as we go through this Advent season this year, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that is almost never looked at during this time of year. You see, it isn't the traditional stories of angels coming to a virgin or of dreams coming in the night keeping a faithful man in love with his betrothed wife or of a miraculous birth in a manger with cute animals all around. It isn't the story of swaddling this cute little baby in a manger under the starlight as a mom and dad sit in the wonder of the miracle God has given them that they have just birthed. It isn't the story of angel choirs announcing the birth of the king of kings to lowly shepherds who visited a manger with awe and worship, or of three kings or wise men who traveled thousands of miles following a star just to show up at the perfect time miraculously to provide for God's protection of this baby from the attack of a jealous, powerful ruler. It isn't this exact story, and yet it is. Think of it more as the adult version of the story of Christmas, kind of like a backstory or a prequel. And you'll get to understand why it's the adult version in just a moment. This love story is of unquenchable, pursuing, inescapable love that God has for us, and it's one of the most powerful stories in all of the Bible. It's the story of the prophet Hosea. Now, some of you know who that is, and some of you don't. So who is Hosea? Hosea was a prophet to Israel, and at the beginning of Israel, uh, led Israel in their early years, was led for centuries through prophets who spoke God's heart and direction to the people. And the people, wanting to be like the nations around them, asked for a king, and God gave them a king, although he warned them 
that would lead to trouble. Israel had their kings, but they also kept their prophets as strong national voices all throughout their history. But just like God said, there were problems. David's grandson, Rehoboam, made some incredibly foolish and stupid decisions that led to a civil war splitting Israel into two kingdoms, with Israel in the north, comprised of ten tribes, and Judah in the south, composed of the tribes of Judah, King David's tribe, and Benjamin. When Israel split, they quickly turned away from God. Now, 200 years later, idol sacrifice, temple prostitutes, and sexual decay are rampant. For 200 years, God has been pleading with Israel through prophets and a few kings that were followers of God to return to him. This is where we find Hosea. Hosea was a prophet at about the same time of the better-known one we know as Isaiah. While Isaiah primarily ministered in the southern kingdom of Judah, Hosea primarily ministered in the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, sometimes, in fact, in the book of Hosea, as you read it, you'll see uh, him refer to the northern kingdom as Ephraim, uh, talking instead of about Israel, talking about the most powerful tribe of the ten in the northern kingdom. Hosea finds himself in the unenviable position of being what some people refer to as a deathbed prophet. Not, not exactly a highly sought-after position for your resume. Hosea is the last prophet God sends to Israel before their demise as a nation, God's last-ditch attempt to woo Israel back into right relationship with him. He starts the ministry of prophesying to Israel, asking the people to repent somewhere around 740-750 B.C., all up until the time that the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C. ransacks Israel and takes them into exile. Hosea continues to minister, we believe, to Israel for a number of years after that. Hosea, as a prophet, would have been well-known across the nation. You need to understand that. Most would not have liked him, and many would have ignored him as something old and from the past, not relevant to current culture. But Hosea was well-known. He was a household name. For the next four weeks, we're going to primarily explore the story part of this book, which is really only the three short chapters in length. Why? Because it's so rich with layers and layers of meaning in this story. It's the real history of Hosea and his wife. It's the real history of God and the people of Israel. It is the reflection of God's heart in sending Jesus to save us that we celebrate during this Christmas season. And it's our story, yours and mine, of our journey with God. The goal of this Advent series is for us to know God more deeply, experiencing his love and presence and power more clearly, to re-dig those wells even deeper to know his love. Now, that's the history in the tent. So let's jump into the story, looking at Hosea 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. So basically what you have here is this preacher prophet walking through the red light district of his town, which in this case in his day was the church district, since most prostitutes were temple ritual prostitutes. And God said to him, I want you to marry a whore. 
Can you imagine what Hosea is thinking? He's probably thinking, I thought you, I followed you all my life. I've been serving you faithfully and you, the holy God, want me to marry a sinful whore. And God says, yes. And he draws Hosea's attention to one standing over there, flaunting her stuff, trying to get men to buy her time. Hosea replies to God, I'm sure, in his mind saying, how about I just prophesy or tell her about her sin, confront the corrupt sexual practices of the religion of the day. And God says, no, I want you to marry her. And Hosea, when he gets his jaw off the ground, he says, yes. And he walks over and and he finds out her name. It's Gomer, not not Pyle. (laughs) Now, Gomer is not the worst female name in the Old Testament. I think Hagar just takes that prize. I mean, what do you call Hagar for short? Hag. Right? Yeah, that, that's 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 a good one, right? So, so Jose asks her to marry him. I can imagine her saying, "Isn't that nice?" I mean, seriously, if you want to role play and pretend, just pay up and we can have some fun. Is probably what Gomer's thinking. But but Jose says, "No. What's the bride price for you so I can pay it to your family and take you as my wife?" Imagine that. She's probably shocked, thinking this crazy, young, holy man is surely joking. But she quickly realizes that he isn't. Then Gomer starts to think, well, he's not really my type, but, well, he he is well-respected, so I suppose this is a way out of having to sell my body to all sorts of stinky, abusive men and, and finally maybe, just maybe, have a peaceful night's sleep and no longer have to worry about food or clothing or safety. Maybe, just maybe, I could be married and have a family like I dreamed about as a child. A dream that has been increasingly snuffed out night after night after night being used and abused for so many years. So they get married. And I'm sure they went off to the Mediterranean Riviera for a honeymoon where they enjoy themselves. And a month later, as she's finishing getting settled into her new home, she wakes up to morning sickness. And so for the next few months, she stands in front of the mirror weekly taking belly bump pictures and posting them on Facebook with all of her family and prostitute friends and many of her regular former Johns liking the pics each week following her on Facebook. Uh, This is just the beginning of the story. As the message planning team was talking about this series, one of the first questions that popped into our minds to help us focus understanding what this text was all about was the question, why marry a whore, to use the biblical language? So we wrote it on the whiteboard in my office in big red letters as we brainstormed. And then a week later, we were interviewing one of the candidates for the children's ministry position we're searching for. And uh, afterward, we realized that the question was still written on red in the board the whole time we were interviewing her. And now we're not sure she saw it. It was kind of back over her shoulder. But we, we decided to erase it because context is very important, isn't it? <laughs> this story reiterates to us how the Bible is definitely not always G-rated. Wendy and I remember finding our fifth grade son years ago laying in his bed reading his Bible. And we thought, wow, that's cool, that's great. And when Wendy asked what he was reading, and he said, Hosea, our heart skipped a beat. This could be an uncomfortable conversation that I'm not ready to have with my prepubescent son getting ideas on what healthy relationships are based upon this book of Hosea. Can you imagine how hard this must have been? For Hosea to be asked by God to do this? I mean, what's God up to? What's he trying to accomplish? 
In order to understand God's intention for this big ask that he's making of Hosea, we need to understand more of what God is referring to when he says, take a wife of whoredom. Hosea 4 describes it saying of Israel this time, Israel has forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, to cherish sex, pleasure, and prosperity, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. They look to created things, dead things, for meaning and fulfillment and direction instead of the Creator. It goes on and says, For the spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak and poplar and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters, though, when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. A people without understanding shall come to ruin. One of the reasons we picked this version of the text is because it uses the strength of language that's actually being used in the, in the, in, in the original text. Some of the other translations tame it a little bit. God uses strong language to convey the depth of offense. And it's interesting, these last verses that we read indicate that the abandonment of God, uh, of God, this extremely sexualized imperculture that has become the norm, rejecting God, he says, why would basically God hold the prostitutes guilty alone, the text posits, when the men have raised them with the expectation that that is right and good and simply the way we live. You see, the Israelites are so blind, they no longer challenge their own culture's values. Instead, believing it is right, and just accepting it. Israel had grown so cold to God that they weren't even aware of how far they had gone. Worship of idols is everywhere. Their money and time is spent on sex and idols trying to buy happiness and prosperity and protection. The primary object of worship that in their day was the god Baal, believed to have control over agriculture and fertility, rainfall and productivity. And since Israel was totally dependent on agriculture to survive, Baal was unrivaled in its importance as a god. The entire country worshipped Baal and built shrines to offer sacrifices as well as providing prostitutes for the men to worship with. What happens when a society is so deceived They incorporate the very things God hates into their ceremonies of worship and service. The text says that society comes to ruin. Can you imagine the utter moral revulsion a holy God must feel to what's going on? The local church, in order to be more culturally relevant and increase attendance, was now making available prostitutes for all worship senders, and that's the culture of that day. And you need to understand, their worship was all about self-sufficiency. It wasn't so much about God dependence when you understand how they worshiped and why they worshiped back then. Religion was about them securing what they thought would make them happy, sexual freedom and financial prosperity, to live their own way through their own dreams and desires. It wasn't to follow the gods so much as it was to appease them, to buy and curry their favor so they could be self-sufficient and do what they dreamed of and wanted to. Much like the way, unfortunately, that we live our faith today. How much of your commitment to faith is to curry favor with God? 
You see, we all want to say none. I want to say none to that answer. But we quickly realize that there's a lot more of it in us than we realize. And we realize how much of our faith is focused on currying favor and getting our wants when, when things are difficult or God asks for sacrificial faith on our part. What, what happens then to your attitude? Does it go down? If it goes down, there's a very good chance that there's still a part of you wanting to curry favor to get what you want from God. See, our culture, even in the American church, while not yet providing prostitutes for worship, thankfully, tends to increasingly reject God's ways of sex. We sacrifice tremendous amounts on the altar of sexual fulfillment through the movies we watch and the freedom we demand We even make sacrifices of children on the altar of sexual freedom and self-sufficient choice through abortion with over 600,000 being performed last year in America and 200 abortions for every 1,000 live births in America. And only a very small percentage of those are due to rape or for the threat of the mother's life. Most are simply out of convenience, wanting to have what we want. We work harder and harder to achieve the dream of financial success. And yet we live in a community that is in the top few percent in the world in wealth, and it's still not enough. We sacrifice to idols of wood to live in the perfect home. We sacrifice to ensure we have the perfect vacations. Why? Because we trust those things to bring us happiness more than God. Where our treasure is, there also is our heart, the Bible says. And see, we recognize that statement. We talk about it all the time in our businesses. We talk about how if we want to understand what we value, the best place to look at that is our checkbook to see what we value. The way we spend our money indicates what we trust in, what we idolize to bring us happiness and fulfillment in life. And we have no problem talking about that in strategic planning with our businesses. But we struggle with it when we talk about it in regard to our faith, where it is nonetheless true. And that's where the Israelites are. What would awaken the Israelites to the danger in which they're living? What would cause them to see that the very things they were celebrating and putting their time and money into were the very things that will cause them ruin, that are separating them from God? In order to reawaken the people out of their sinful stupor, the people of Israel need to be shocked. Now, if you were deciding what would shock them in this instance, what would you think would be the best way to do that? Maybe think of it this way through this illustration. Think of it about you having a really close friend or a family member, maybe maybe your child, who is completely wrapped up in a chemical addiction, prostituting themselves to pay for drugs and destroying their health, using everything to give you give them to spend it foolishly on their own pleasure habit, even stealing from you and lying to you and accusing you of not being for them when you refuse to give them what they want. How do you intervene? See, the same question That's the same question. I suspect for most of us that would look like serious confrontation. We might do that well sometimes. But with the repeated daily things going on of them stealing from us and taking and abusing themselves, I'm sure many of us would at times lose it and power up and tell them off, trying to overpower them, trying to shame them into submission, trying to force them to hit bottom. 
Even if we did it well, we would seek to create a kind of an environment that in one sense would, would take away control from them by getting a group of friends and family members, who's, who, members who love them together to do an intervention and pointing out to them how we love them, but also pointing out to them all the damage they're doing and how they've been destroying trust and creating so much pain. And we would choose, if necessary, to kick them out of the house and change the locks so they can't get back in and steal to support their habit. And we would try to get all their closest friends and family to agree, to toe the line on boundaries, to remove the support of their habit. Maybe if they don't choose to change, even choosing to have nothing to do with them if they still do not repent. And if possible, forcing them into an inpatient treatment in a lockdown facility if necessary. And God, through the prophets, has been warning warning Israel for over 200 years. But God does something else in Hosea, something so radically different. It stands out in a stunning way. God asks Hosea to marry a prostitute. Now, some struggle with this about God asking uh, Hosea to marry a prostitute because they can't imagine God would command something this insane, something this radical. But the reality is God often commands radical things in the midst of radically sinful situations in order to vividly call people back to himself. He commanded Isaiah to walk naked and barefoot for three years to expose how sinful Judah was and how they looked before God himself in their rags and nakedness. And God called Ezekiel to lay on his right side for a year because of the sins of the people to radically call God's people back to him. God radically commands his people and and he will often command radical things of his prophets in order to shake his people out of their sinful coma. Now imagine Hosea's thoughts. What was going through his mind? Even though this book is primarily about God, we can imagine what some of his thoughts might have been. God, are you sure you want me to marry a whore? Do you really want me to promise to be faithful to an unfaithful woman? And the answer God gives is yes. I want you to marry and commit yourself to a whore because this land is committing great whoredom by forsaking me. And you, Hosea, will be a picture of my love. Even though they accuse me of being mean, accuse me of being distant, uh, you are a picture of my love and how I constantly pursue in love and a picture of my faithfulness to a faithless people. Let me ask you a question. Would you marry someone or would you ask your or want your kids to marry someone who you knew would be unfaithful? Hosea may have gone on to say, but I've kept myself pure and followed you, God. I don't deserve this. Whatever Hosea's thoughts were, he obeyed. And he pledged to be faithful to an unfaithful woman. He married Gomer. Remember, Hosea was a household name, and often one referred probably to derogatorily, that, with the various versions probably more colorful than this, of that blasted holier-than-thou holy man. So Hosea marrying a temple prostitute would have made the front page of the newspaper. I can imagine seeing the headline now, Hosea, holy man, reveals true colors, marries a whore, and the rest of the article would not have been complimentary. Everyone would have been curious about this story. Everyone from the priest to the prostitutes would have picked up this edition of the paper. All heads would have been turning. And the priest would have been asking, does he know what he's doing? And people would have thought, he's crazy. And that's exactly what God wanted. 
He wanted this crazy story to catch everyone's attention. God wanted all eyes on Hosea. And Hosea knew whom he represented. He was representing God. And he knew his life and his marriage and his family were symbolic of God's relationship with his people. Imagine the interviews that took place as Hosea would walk around on the street. Uh, someone in the crowd would say, oh, no, Hosea, you're crazy for marrying a prostitute. She'll use you and leave you. And Hosea responding, you're crazy for worshiping Baal. Why have you left God? A crowd member asking him, Hosea, why did you marry her? You'll never be happy with her. And Hosea responding, why, why did you leave God, Baal, and all the things you seek for success and happiness and sexual pleasure are incapable of making you happy. And the crowd asking Hosea, why did you marry a prostitute? And Hosea saying, because God told me to marry her. And the crowd going on and saying, why? Why would you, he tell you to become one with someone who constantly breaks God's law? And Hosea responding, because you have broken God's law and have prostituted yourselves by worshiping something other than God. And yet God still longs to be one with you and to marry you and to love you. Hosea's life could have made some people to pause and think, this is curious. I'm going to watch this guy for a while. And for sure his life with Gomer became something to watch. And we'll see how their marriage becomes increasingly symbolic for Israel and is so applicable to our lives today as we continue the series in the future. But let's summarize just a couple key lessons for us today. First, no matter how bad off you feel in life, no matter what sin you feel makes you unlovable by God or others, He knows and He is still faithfully, lovingly pursuing you, trying to win your affection. So during the series and this Christmas season, remember that love. Meditate on that love and accept His personal love proposal to you and rest in God's pursuing, persistent love. See, Hosea is going to teach us more about how we can learn to receive God's love over the next few weeks. But just begin by accepting God's marriage proposal to you. If you are here today and you felt like you cannot become a follower of Jesus until you get some things better in order, or if you feel God is angry at you and others, then I want you to reconsider that. Hosea is a picture of God toward you right now. How he loves you right now. How he wants you to say yes to him right now. Would you receive him today and choose to make him your Lord, meaning the master of your life? And if that's a decision you make, then I want to encourage you to take the next step of declaring that public in a celebration by being baptized and come to the baptism class next week and be baptized on December 11th where you go under the water and declare that Jesus is the only one that can make me clean. And as I go under the water, I declare that I am dying to myself and I'm rising again as I come out to live to him him alone and his love and to receive his love. See, one of the things we forget when we look at this and we, we try to isolate Israel as being so much different than ourselves, but the reality is most of Israel still felt like they were worshiping God as well as Baal. They didn't like being told they were whores and they didn't like being told their pursuit of wealth through mixing in their worship of Baal was sinful. They were just people trying to be in control of their lives, to curry favor through religion. And in the process, being idolaters, 
and not even fully recognizing that. They would go to church, they'd pray a prayer, throw a 20 in the offering, and then go fulfill their demand for sexual freedom and sacrifice to their work and their pleasure and bail in order to ensure their work and financial success and their dreams in life that they thought would make them happy. And they felt like God was too demanding, too rigid, too old-fashioned, too judgmental, making a big deal out of stuff that for them wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, what does God care if I have sex with a prostitute? Everyone is doing it, and the prostitutes need to make a living somehow. What does God care if I spend my grain and money on festivals where I get drunk and have party, have parties and have fun and have sex, and instead of giving to God and trusting Him? What does God care if I spend all my free time in entertainment rather than developing the spiritual habits of knowing and obeying Him first? They didn't like being challenged on their sexual practices or their use of finances and resources that God gave them. They wanted God on their terms, not on God's terms. And yet God shows them this profound picture that even though they are in reality whores, unfaithful to the God who gives them everything they have, that God is still pursuing them with love and offers kindness and faithfulness beyond anything they can imagine, even though they accuse him of being demanding and harsh. And this is a picture of what God does in sending Jesus to earth that first Christmas. He sends his son, this time as a baby, to grow up and serve people who will kill him and reject him. Want him only for his miracles, what he can do for them, and not want him for who he is for himself. Want his blessings on their finances, but then wanted to keep it all for themselves rather than being faithful to God. You see, we see this powerful picture of a pursuing God, willing to love and radically pursue even the most unfaithful of people, this inescapable love. And for you and I as followers of Jesus, like Hosea, there's a second key lesson given thus far in Hosea. And that is simply this, that God asks us to faithfully love the unfaithful so that we love like him. He says, if you want to follow me, you need to take up your cross and follow me, demonstrating that the greatest love of all is laying down your life for another. And that means we will be hurt often. We can expect life following him to often involve relational pain of people being unfaithful to him and unfaithful to you. You can expect relationships to be challenging and people to leave relationship with you or the church you love in hurtful ways. But our role as followers of Jesus is to love the same way he loves, with the same intensity of faithfulness, even in the face of rejection, betrayal, and pain. See, we often think that ministering to others, making a difference in the world, is something that should be joyful and easy, especially this time of year as we give to those in need. It should be inspiring and motivating, and it can be and often is. But Jesus invites us to love like he loves, to commit ourselves to something more than that, to loving those who are unfaithful because we are God's ambassadors representing who he is to others and who he is is radically loving, patient, pursuing, and radically faithful to relationship over the long term. So as we close today, I invite you to ponder this radical love, that even though you and I in our sin are so often, way too often like whores, I invite you to celebrate and receive the love of God that is pursuing you. 
And as we close today, we're going to once again continue our tradition of decorating our first Christmas tree of the season with ornaments upon which we write the names of the five people we are praying for who are not following God right now, asking God to give us opportunities to faithfully love them like he loves them, help them discover God's love and follow Jesus, to risk, even in the face of almost certain pain in some of those relationships, to risk talking with them, to risk sharing our faith, to risk having someone over, to talk to someone at work and to invite them to receive this tenaciously pursuing, radically generous love. So after we get done praying, would you just come while we continue to worship and write those names. If you're not ready this week, you can come next week and do it, or the week following even write those names, and then commit to loving those people and asking God to allow opportunities to care for them and to serve them and to love them as he loves them, and maybe even this year lead them to following him, or if they're away from church but believers, to lead them back to engagement in the body of Christ and following Jesus together. Would you pray with me? Lord, make your inescapable, tenaciously pursuing love even more real to each of us. Would you help us accept it rather than to be controlled by our own past or our own thinking or the thinking of our culture around us and reject us? And would you help us to love in our relationships, in our marriages, in our friendships, with our work associates, to love like you love. Regardless of their faithfulness, would you help us to demonstrate your faithful pursuing love in powerful ways in this coming year. In Jesus' name, amen. Come and worship. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.